0: you can support this podcast on patreon.com
1: forward slash first paw media here's to the adventure seeking dog mushers out there the hundreds of you who stand on the runners dreaming and thinking about the northern lights of course there is something else you could do if you've got something to say start a podcast with first paw media and harness your creative side Maybe even earn enough money, enough money to tell yourself, hey, I'm not just a dog musher, I'm a rover, I'm a wanderer, I'm a voyager, I'm an explorer. Visit firstpaw.media. Mush on over today. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Canadian Challenge Tales. We are joined by Aaron Peck from Elevation Sled Dogs in Grand Prairie, Alberta. How are you, Aaron?
0: Awesome. How are you, Dan?
1: Wonderful. Appreciate you joining me. Uh, for those that don't know you, they should... Uh, Seven time I did a rod finisher, um, rookie year in 2000, best finish in 2022 with uh, 10th place and 15th last year. Before that, uh, five time finisher at the Canadian Challenge, in which I believe you've won it three times 2011, 2017, and 2020, in addition to several other mid distance races across Canada. I think, if I remember your promo video correctly, your goal is to be the first Canadian to win the Iditarod. Is that still the plan for the kennel? Yeah,
0: it's uh it's faded a little bit, I would say if I'm honest. Um yeah, we're in a rebuilding stage with the team. I just I think if I had the team in front of me, had we been a little more aggressive in the breeding program there to to build up another generation here to carry in to the reins, it would have been um but yeah, we're kind of um we're breeding some really nice females right now. So there's a strong team in the future coming, but, um, yeah, I, I don't think I have the, the dog power in the midst at this time to, to make that a reality, but, um, yeah, we, we're optimistic and we're, we're still working hard.
1: Excellent. Well, I want to rewind a little bit back to how you got started into mushing and, uh, you know, maybe your first mushing experience or even your first race, uh, if you can tell us about that.
0: Yeah, way back. I grew up in Ontario, southern Ontario, and kind of farming community. I saw Iditarod on ABC Sports. It used to be covered on ABC Sports, and Susan Butcher was dominating these couple guys in blue coats chasing air across Alaska. That would have been like Martin Booser and Rick Swenson and that. It was uh, it was just captivating to see it on TV there. I would record it on the old VCR and I'd watch, I'd play it over and over. I remember getting real upset when my older brother recorded over one of it, one of the, one, because they put it on for about an hour or so on Saturday, ABC Wide World of Sports. So got a couple books. And then my dad um, had a, an old friend who had an old team and want to know if we want to look after them. And he bought the food for the first year an eight dog team kind of old siberian husky crosses and that's how i cut my teeth this old team of crusty dogs and i had to push the sled pretty hard going up the hills they didn't work that hard and yeah i ran a four dog four mile race when i was 13 and um back then in ontario there was a lot of dog mushers uh it was a pretty vibrant mushing community back then in ontario and there was a lot of six dog six uh 60 mile races and Marma, they had a 150. Um, then over in Maine, there was a 250, the Labrador 400 was like kind of crazy to think about, but some of these mushers running the longer stuff were bringing dogs down from Alaska. And so at a young age, I got to see dogs that were kind of being imported into Ontario from Alaska by, uh, Bruce Langmay, Tony Martin, Tim McEwen, Boyd Wilson was bringing dogs down from Ross Saunderson. And so You could see some of these, you'd actually see some of these dogs on the Iditarod video or an Iditarod pictures and you'd be like, whoa, that dog's actually, I got to see that dog and you'd see these mushers um, doing the longer stuff and it just, that really got me because I'm doing all this work feeding my dogs and I wanted to spend more than 15 minutes on the trail. So yeah, one step at a time, I just climbed the ranks into these six dog, 60 mile races and. Yeah, that was kind of the early days back in Ontario. My parents were real supportive and uh neither one of them were dog mushers. It just um we had a little hobby farm, so any animal was welcome.
1: Nice. And and what brought you and your kennel out to on uh Alberta?
0: Yeah. Um the idea of moving north and west was always kinda on the radar. I actually lived in Alaska for two years and worked under Martin Booser. 98 to 2000, ran my first Iditarod with his yearlings in 2000 at 20 years old. And um, back to Ontario, did some school, eventually came out west in 06 or so. Um, I had a contact, uh, Ross Adam, who had run Iditarod several times. Um, He he owns a big bison ranch out here in Alberta, and he gave me a place to stay with my dogs. So it got me north and west. That was the key to get out of that humid climate in southern Ontario get closer to alaska just a a better climate for for training dogs and 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 then you know at least i'm over halfway to alaska to make iditarod a little more feasible
1: so was iditarod the goal right from the very beginning or was there a, a point in your early mushing days when you decided that iditarod was the plan
0: in the earliest days it seemed so like impossible it was like whoa like you know so far away and it just seemed like so huge and the mushers these iconic mushers were like to me they were like michael jordan and wayne gretzky and like to imagine ever being on the same trail as these mushers just seemed so far out i was really inspired by you know one of my early mentors, uh, Bruce Langmaid who, who really dominated the mid distance circuit back in, in the East, uh, Michigan, all the way to Maine. He, he won tons of races and, uh, he really inspired me and he, he got me connected with Martin Booser and he says, if you don't go to Alaska, you're not going to run the Iditarod. Like you just, you know, and he really, uh, you know, encouraged me to go for it, you know, and it was that that kind of, yeah. You know, and then, and then connecting with Martin and getting that position at 18 years old, it was like, I'm going to apprentice for Wayne Gretzky or, you know, that's, you're just a a young lad and you're look you're so far away and far removed from Alaska. It's like how, you know, to go, it was just the opportunity of a lifetime. And so, yeah, that's, um, once that kind of materialized, I'm like, this is really happening. This is really going to happen. And I just worked as hard as possible to make it, uh, to follow through and be a good helper for happy trails kennels. And, and, uh, yeah, it became a reality. Yeah.
1: Well, it's, it's hard to, to look at an opportunity like that with a a well-known musher, very accomplished, very successful at the Iditarod, let alone, you know, however many decades, I think it was 40 years or something. You ran the race in a row, um, you know, not to take advantage of that opportunity and learn what you can. Is there a, A bit of information or advice that you got from Martin that that sort of stands out to you or that you remember still when you're out there on the runners? Yeah,
0: a lot of uh, his philosophy uh, that was ingrained in me in those two years was uh, still, I hold on to a lot of that to this day. You know, just the upbeatness and attitude around the dogs and um, realizing, you know, taking full ownership for, you know, when things aren't going wrong, it is my fault. Like it's not the dog's fault. It's, uh, it's the guy or gal on the, on the runners that's in charge of the situation. So I don't, um, I tend to take responsibility for whatever's going on. Um, yeah, uh, positive reinforcement was, um, you know, to this day, I still, you know, ignore the negative reward, the positive. That was something he would always say. So we tended to, you know, not, not react to negative, um, Situations, or if a if a dog was doing something negative, there was very little reaction to that. But when we noticed something positive in the dog's behavior, then we would praise that dog, like and really, really um, reward that dog and just pet pet the dog up and yeah, or just verbally. And you know, it was and so that's how we rolled there. It was always um, such a positive place to to work and be part of that team and the mission there was so clearly defined, he, by then he'd already won three Iditarods. And so, you know, the, the mission was clear and like, we're, we're building a winning Iditarod team and me and the other helper there, that's all we cared about. And night and day, seven days a week, we just went after it and ran dogs and did chores and all the projects. It was pretty, uh, intense but um, highly rewarding.
1: Excellent. So I want to touch a little on your time with the Canadian Challenge, and then we'll come back to the Iditarod Fund, because I know everybody would be excited to hear how things went out on the trail this year. So I think your first Canadian Challenge was back in 2007, and then 2010, 2011, and then seventeen and 2020. So I'm going to bring you all the way back to 2007, if you can remember the first one. Do you... Have oh, yeah. a particular memory from your first time at the Canadian Challenge or something that's that stands out to you?
0: Oh, yeah. Bloody cold. Like, intensely cold. And um, it was, I think back, I just chuckle, you know, because it was like a stampede of mushers. They had these uh, dignitaries um, and people ride on top of our sleds, um, you know, across the river. You know, and the trail was chaotic starting out of Prince... Uh, um, Prince Albert there and um, yeah, the, the, I forget what her name was. Yeah. The, the governor general, whatever. I don't know. She went flying off a sled, somebody's sled. I was like, I remember there was a lot of teams, you know, and everybody's racing North up and up the side of the highway. And I, I thought I had a pretty good team and, but the cold really zapped a lot of those teams, including mine. And a lot of people scratched early on the race really fell apart. A lot of teams pulled out and it was down to just a few of us and but it was so cold i didn't think i was going to finish um they gave us an extended oh i remember now on the way back from larange to get back they shortened it so we didn't come all the way back um down and so that was a relief because they had sent this trail far inland to the to the west and i can't remember the name of the road or trail but it was way back in there and it was so cold i remember and yeah uh the diesel truck would not even keep the cab warm for my handler uh, my mom was out visiting yeah it was it was more um torturous for them than even me but uh yeah it was just cold i think i finished with five or six dogs just barely wobbled into the check or the finish line i think we were like fifth or something but i mean yeah it was i, I i'll never forget that
1: yeah we seem to be well known for the cold um and i've only been involved with the canadian challenge for two years and uh both of them have come with you know minus 30 uh before you count windchill for the start of the race minus 35 minus 36 something crazy like that so you know and that's middle of the day in the afternoon kind of temperature so seem to be well known for the cold is there a way that you set your team up now to be able to handle a lot of that cold?
0: Well, I've been through enough serious cold weather now that, um, I know the dogs do really well and I trust the dogs and got good coats for the dogs. Um, you know, to protect them underneath, that's the main thing, protect their extremities from frostbite. Um, my gear is really good. I know how to keep my hands warm. The cold. Um, yeah, I, as, not that I'm old or anything, but I guess, yeah, it's like, I don't enjoy it as much. Back then I was more like bring it on kind of attitude. Um, sometimes now I'm a little more reluctant with the serious cold, but (laughs) we're prepared. Well, I mean, I'm not, I did a rod, uh, two thousand the gold loop year in 2021. Um, we saw at least minus 50 through one particular night and it was difficult. The glasses were fogging up and, but the dogs did incredibly well. And so, Yeah. It's just one of those things. Part of the deal.
1: Yeah. So how about, uh, 2011, the first time you won the challenge? Uh, is there a particular memory from that one or maybe a dog on the team that stood out for you?
0: Yeah. So 2011, I remember, uh, Jerry Walker, who's a legend in the Canadian challenge circles. He's just, you know, he's won the race a bunch and he's, he's, you know, he's a patient mush he's a fast musher and he's patient and he he puts the rest on the dogs because he wants to keep that speed in the team and his team is always fast and he'll he'll let them run and, and fly down the trail but then he'll put enough rest on them to so they can keep it going um i was taking a little bit different approach because i knew i wasn't as fast as him so i had to i was cutting my rest more so it was a bit of a tortoise in the hair idea and um i kind of held up with kept up with him to larange uh maybe an hour or so behind him coming into larange but um this was one of my first experiences i know i'd been in iditarod prior to this but to actually be in a race situation like where there's another team i'm i'm actually strategizing around what they're doing a little bit so it was really um It was fun getting up to the range. I mean, he was camped on the side. I went over the hill and I camped and he didn't know I was there. And as soon as he went by, I booted my dogs and went after him and uh, that sort of thing. It was like a bit of cat and mouse. It was fun. And he had fun too. And then, but his team, he probably because he was letting them run too fast, uh, he had to shrink his team down quite a bit in LaRange and he gave them a longer rest. I mean, I came out from my nap ready to go after the mandatory eight and he was still there. I'm like, what are you doing here? And so, um, he's like, oh, I might scratch. Like, well, I'm really sorry to hear that, but I'm going. So I, I went around up to Stanley and one big run. The dogs were just marching away. They were, they were awesome. And so we won the race by I think less than an hour. But, yeah, he really gained a bunch of time on me again after his long rest in La Range and I I didn't know. I think he, he maybe told me he was going to scratch just to get me to relax. I think maybe he was messing with me because he came after me pretty strong on the backstretch there, and uh, I remember working hard on that last run um, to to win the race. It was uh, – I, I hadn't – you know, I think that was my first win in a mid-distance race, so that was exciting and to win the Canadian challenge. Yeah. So Dakar as a dog, um, Dakar comes from originally from Jeff King's kennel. He's out of Solomon and Clarney. So there's some other top mushers in Alaska still running dogs right out of these lines, like, uh, Nick Bedit and Pete Kaiser and, um, a lot of Solomon dogs around and some top kennels and that sort of thing. And he was, I got him from Debbie motoro and, um, yeah. Uh, Debbie motors is a, a good friend of Jeff King's. It was, it was wonderful, uh, getting, um, Dakar to join the team and he was just a yearling, but he really, he was something I wasn't really using him in lead, but, um, I almost didn't take him on the race cause he was younger than everyone else. And so I brought him along and, well, if he looks mentally, um, taxed a little bit, I'll just leave him at one of the checkpoints. No big deal. Well, on that last loop, I put him in lead and he, he charged around that last 120 miles and, and he just became the dominant force in my team for the next several years. And yeah, I mean, I really stood out. He, he just wasn't tired about it at all. He was, he was kind of something a little different than what I had in my kennel up to that point.
1: I always love the stories about where dogs exceed musher's expectations, not because they're pushed to do it, but just, you know, given the opportunity to step up, you know, some of them seem to do really well. Is there a a way to to see that potential? I know it's really hard, um, you know, maybe to explain, but is there a way to see that potential in the dogs, or when to give them that opportunity that you might uh, recommend?
0: I think those opportunities or those discoveries come out of necessity. I think sometimes it's like, especially on Iditarod, it's you know, it's such a long race and a thousand miles, and I mean you could be returning your main leader halfway through or even sooner or multiple leaders. Uh, there's been lots of top teams without their main leaders for the last uh, several or, you know, a couple hundred miles. It's like, I we're going to finish this race. I still have dogs that can run, but nobody wants to lead. And, or that might be the situation for a particular musher. And, and I think it's like, and in that, in that point of necessity, it's like, Try them all. Try everyone. Like somebody, and that's when these discoveries are made. I mean, then and, and then you put that wheel dog up front. That you, yeah, he pulls hard, but uh he didn't lead last year, so I never tried him this year because he just seems happy like a wheel dog. And there's there's been so many other leaders taking all the time up front, and I just kind of forgot about him or her, you know. And then you you put him up front, and it's like, oh boy, why didn't I try this sooner? <laughs> and then, and so, um. Yeah, things like that have have happened to distance mushers. I think I think it comes out of necessity, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, if only people could foresee the future, tell when there's that's going to happen or when those dogs are ready. You know, everyone would yeah. be happy with that skill. Um, so, how how about the last Canadian challenge? You know, back in in twenty twenty, that was the you know right when COVID was getting going. Um, you know, another, another first place finish, which is, um, you know, obviously well, well well-deserved. Is there something that stands out about that one?
0: Well, yeah, I think um, Connor McMahon was there with me. He worked with me that winter and he was running uh, in the 200 mile race and he had um, kind of a, I'd say there was a couple young ones in there that were really good, but he had like six of the best dogs in there and he, his team stood out. I mean, he just rolled up to um, LaRange like it was no big deal. And um, my team, I had uh, a couple of the the main leaders in there, but I did have some holes in the team or not, you know, just some question marks. And But by this point, for me, I had gained a lot of confidence um, over the years. And I think in my early times in the Canadian Challenge, I always thought, like, boy, if one of those Alaskan or Yukon Quest teams comes down here, to run this race and, you know, they're used to running. They've got dogs that can handle eight and 10 hour runs. No problem. And do a four hour rest and do it again. Like Sebastian Schneel or Lance Mackey or somebody, I mean, they would just run this, uh, Canadian challenge in like three runs (laughs) or, you know, four runs. They would take uh, a lot less rest and, um, I always thought that and then by by this point though now 2020 the team I was getting quite confident with the team now and I knew we had a really strong team and so it was really easy for me to cut their rest and run them long at this point I thought well maybe I'm the one that can finally do this race you know with the uh, you know with on a sharper uh run rest ratio And, um, yeah, that's what we did. And I I could have actually trimmed it even more. And towards the end, I held up a bit just to, yeah, it was just a couple dogs there. I wanted to add a little more rest, but yeah, it was, it was, um, confidence building for sure. Just to go through the motions of the race and yeah, it was, it was a beautiful race. I, I remember that. And we had actually that team, once we, we put the them all together you know the 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 whole group you know from connor's team and we did that race just before going to alaska and that I did iditarod 2020 was um my best run at iditarod even though we didn't finish we scratched and checked to look the dogs had um, acquired a kennel cough and it was rolling through the team pretty good we had to, a couple dogs borderline pneumonia and it was just not going to be good to carry on. And we were at a real vulnerable place in the race trail up there on Shaktulik. So, but my point is that that team was really strong. I mean, that was maybe the best team I've had. And they, we stayed near the front of that race. We were moving into the top 10. I was really confident for the coast. I felt we were going to for sure get into the top 10. Um, you know, and looking back on the stats of that race, we did, we had excellent trail times down the river. Um, all the way to the coast before they got sick. And so it was just, um, so that team I had in the challenge in 2020 was, I had a lot of confidence in them for sure.
1: Excellent. So let, I'm going to jump ahead to, to this season. Cause I know you and, and, um, your kennel had a, a big season this year. Uh, I know you've been at the, um, the 200 mile race at Caledonia regularly. Were you there uh, this season?
0: Yeah, we were, we were, um, yeah, that's a. I really enjoy that race. It's, it's, um, you know, you got to be ready to run up some big hills there. It's very different than the Canadian Challenge, and it's very different from, yeah. I don't know a lot of flat, you know, Yellowknife or wherever. You know, it's it's just there's it's more mountainous or foothill country. So there's some big climbs, a lot of work. I mean, you got to really work in that race. Like you, you're gonna get some blisters, or you're gonna you know, wear out the soles in your, in your boots kind of thing. It's a lot of work. Um, because, uh, some of the client, you know, you're not just going to stand there and like, I mean, no matter how good your team is, you're going to get to work and help the dogs. So yeah, that's, that's a beautiful part of the the country. And, um, Craig Houghton and his crew put on an awesome race there. It's under the radar. That race doesn't really get any, um, hype or attention they don't even they don't use the trackers it's kind of kind of old school but and um but it's an awesome way to set up the team you know it's an excellent training run for Iditarod and yeah so we were there uh we had two teams the last three years we've had two teams I think it's five years in a row now we've run there and uh only one year did we just have um one uh one team but yeah. So mela Hill, who's worked with us, continues to work with us. Um, she, she won the race the last two years. If I, I think anyways, yeah, I'm just trying. Yeah, I think so. And so yeah, we just, yeah, it's like, however, it turns out we try to split the teams kind of evenly or whatever, and I'll take certain dogs that I want to look at for I did Iditarod on my team and kind of, yeah. And so it's been a great race.
1: Yeah. So for those that are unfamiliar, it's the Caledonia Classic Dog Sled Race in Fort Saint James, BC. So I guess that's northeastern BC. Uh, is that that's probably the your local race or your closest uh, mid-distance race to where your kennel is? Is that right? That's
0: right. It is. It's a seven-hour drive or whatever. That's um, that would be the closest one to get to. It's about eleven hours to get over to the Canadian Challenge. So it's yeah. We're kind of out here in the middle. Uh not a lot of yeah, those are the two. The challenge in the Caledonia, other than the Yukon, they're the only races in the West, you know. So um that's how it, it works right now. It's been kind of the routine for several years. The challenge has always been on the radar. Um, but the timing doesn't lend itself to I did very well. So we just we had to make a decision and otherwise we could be there maybe a little more often to support the challenge. But um yeah, that's 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 what we've been doing lately.
1: Yeah, so uh, usually the end of January, beginning of February. So they have a hundred mile seven dog and a two hundred mile ten dog, I believe, as well as a mix of sprint races for those that might want to follow along with uh, the Caledonia Classic. So after Caledonia, I believe you and and Mela were up in. Um, white horse to do the canadian side of the yukon quest how did that go this year
0: oh it was awesome it's always been a goal of mine to run into dawson by dog team um you know i to run i've never had the i guess the setup or the the time or you know the resources to be able to run the yukon quest thousand mile race and the iditarod in the same year like a lot uh you know many kennels have made a point of doing that over the last 20 years and um but yeah to be able to run into Dawson I always I really like that it's not the full distance I think 450 miles is just right you know setting them up for Iditarod and so yeah to run up to Dawson was beautiful uh we had awesome conditions and um yeah there wasn't a huge field of mushers but it was a it was a really nice field of mushers it was a lot of fun and they had their 100 mile race and there was a lot of teams in that and then they they also had the 250 there was a few teams in that so you know there was quite a few teams on the trail right from the start and so it created a lot of excitement uh a really festive starting um uh you know down in whitehorse there and lots of people out. It was really encouraging, um, really encouraging to see a lot of these uh, 100 mile teams getting out there, new mushers, small kennels, which is awesome, like for people to get involved in the this beautiful sport, you know, and um, yeah, to run up to Dawson uh, over those uh, Solomon Dome and what's the other one, Eureka. Yeah, there were some big climbs in there and yeah, all the old timers—they make funny, and because it used to be a lot harder, I guess there was even less uh, checkpoints than what we have now. So we kind of, with each generation, I think we get a little softer.
1: Yeah, and I think it's always uh, people remember the the struggles in the past a little more than 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 the the easy times. You know, you remember the storm you went through or the cold that you experienced, uh, as you mentioned, but it's uh, the easy runs don't seem to m- make it to the memory bank a little bit. Um, for anyone that didn't happen to catch it, I would strongly encourage you to check out the interview that the Yukon Quest did with uh, Aaron at the end after he finished. Clearly, very tired, but uh, I thought it was an excellent interview. Lots of detail about how the race went. Uh, I think you can find that on their uh, Facebook account. So, after you finished at uh, the Yukon, did you go directly from there to Alaska for Iditarod, or did you make a stop at home to resupply?
0: Yeah, this whole uh, strategy for logistically like getting to Alaska for Iditarod, you know, that's you kind of got a deadline. You got to be there for the EKG and the blood work and the vet checks and that. So, and, um, yeah, there was a bit too much time and we, and, and uh, you know, Mela was there to run the quest and she ran Caledonia, but we needed her at home for the month that I was at Iditarod to help keep everything on, uh, going at home here. Uh, my wife, Eva and the four kids and our boarding kennel business, we just, it's kind of the condition of running Iditarod. It was, you know, um, you know, Mayla really, sacrifice that she would have loved to have been in Alaska helping prepare for Iditarod again like she did the year before but um she came back to home base and then uh our other helper Sarah um uh helped helped me um for Iditarod so we kind of had to do a switch there anyway so after a quest it was just like look let's just bomb home uh, we're so used to that drive it's a day and a half from Whitehorse it's just like it's kind of over before you know it. And uh, so we just bombed home and spent uh, about five or six days at home before. And it was good. We did. We got uh, the trailer reorganized, cleaned out. By then it was just kind of trashed in there because after the quest and the food drops and everything getting, you know, um, we could have organized it on the road, but it was sure nice to get home and spend time with my wife and kids before, you know, the big trip. (laughs) So, um, yeah, recalibrate. And then we head north for Iditarod. So yeah, we ended up coming home.
1: Nice. And and I think uh, you're gone for quite a while for Iditarod. I mean, obviously the race is, you know, a week and a few days or week and a half, depending on, on how the weather conditions go. Um, but I think you're up there for about a month or three or four weeks at least. Can you without having to give away too much about where you're staying or anybody that's helping along the way, but you to give people a little insight to what that's like, you know, just the time in Alaska outside of the race itself.
0: Yeah. Um, being from out of state, like it'd be very similar if you're coming, um, in from lower 48 or Norway, the Norwegian teams or Swedish teams that come over. It's like finding a host, uh, you know, a host location because the cost of staying in an actual hotel would be not feasible unless you're completely sponsored up and uh, and got money to spare. I mean, this is like a crucial element to making it work. You've got to find a good place to stage out of. And um, yeah, so you you get up there. Um, so the last couple of years, um, uh, Happy Trails Kennel, Martin and Kathy, uh, Martin Booster there, they were awesome and took us in it was like the good old days and um yeah kind of reacquainted myself with the the old trails i trained on 20 years before it was pretty cool and um they've gotten real busy with their tour business there wasn't really room for us there this year so and um karen hendrickson actually hendricks actually um offered uh to have us um stay at her place in willow and it worked out so good i mean the trails were so nice out of there and so We had um, a garage to, to, you know, it's getting all the stuff ready for the race in advance. There's always a list to work through what's missing, what you still might need to do. It's just crossing the T's, dotting the I's, and um, there's dog care. Then you're fitting in your training runs. You've got your EKG blood work appointment, and then you've got your vet check on the Wednesday. You've got driver's meeting on the Thursday but it's it's really important to get the dogs keep the dogs running as they move closer into the race you don't want them just sitting around and um so yeah it becomes pretty busy that last week leading up to a and it's it's a very joyous time of year and the anticipation of the race is um you know one of the best parts of course and um you you work so hard for so long to get to this point you're actually there and um yeah we were in a good spot karen helped us so much with some loose ends um that we needed um yeah just some equipment things she had some extra stuff around she helped us with and then um yeah the training runs let's see what else um the friday before the ceremonial start is a day off that's uh a day that's available for training that's an important day to do a good training run on the dogs and make kind of your last decision um, you can put, uh, 20 dogs through the blood work and, the and the EKGs and the vet check. So you still can have like a pool of 20 dogs on the list and you don't have to decide really until Sunday, the start of the real race. Cause you can run 12 of those dogs in, um, Anchorage on the Saturday, and then you could still be, um, making your final decision on the Sunday. So out of those 20 dogs, actually. So. I think we had 18 dogs with us and then, um, there was a, a little injury on one of the young dogs and a little this or a little that you always got to have a few extra dogs with you because for any little reason, you won't take them on the race. It might be simply not gaining enough weight. Uh, the dog hasn't put on enough pounds before the race, uh, maybe not eating good or just something's off with the dog. Uh, and then on the blood work, you might, uh, the vet, uh, usually gives you a call and you know if there's any red flags on that blood work and we in fact had a couple dogs that their blood work was just a little uh concerning um one dog's hematocrit level was quite low uh he had finished strong on the Quest 450 and um it could have been that he he had not fully recovered from that race it's uh it was only 2 weeks before the Iditarod so that was um you know, an unexpected thing that came up just before the race and, you know, being cautioned about taking him on the race. And it wasn't like, don't take him at all. It was more like keep an eye on him kind of thing and have that information in your vet book as you go up the trail, as the vets check him over. And, um, yeah, another dog had, I forget what it was, but it was, um, and I had noticed that he was a younger dog and he just wasn't wasn't looking quite right, and it kind of coincided with his blood work. I don't. It it's something that just kind of went away on its own. But again, that was a dog not to take, and we didn't take them. I mean, that's so valuable that I did Rod um does that you know to screen the dogs before they head out on the trail and give as much information as possible so that we can make the best decisions possible before we go a thousand miles with those dogs. It's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, it sounds really interesting, and I'm sure we could have a. A veterinarian explain all of the all the things that they look at and, and some of the things that they watch for in the dogs to try and show you know what 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 they might be capable of over the next couple of weeks. So I'm really surprised that you said that they don't really get a lot of time off because I've heard lots indicate that it's oh yeah like so excited to go at the, for the ceremonial start and the start of the race like everybody's holding them back because they get so much time off before but that's clearly not what you're doing is that you have a similar approach to others or is it, um, you know, common that, uh, that the dogs get a lot of time off for others?
0: Well, um, I've wrestled with that. Um, again, the, sometimes the logistical, you know, and training leading up to the race to find the right setup. I've, I've studied and done my best to observe what other top teams are doing. You know, it's not just the week before the race, it's the month before the race. How, what seems to be the most successful setup for the race. And I think some of the top teams over the last 10 years, it seems like um, February is a fairly laid back month, but uh, maybe, um, you know, the, the most rigorous training camping trips are happening in actually late January or early February. And those dogs are given, you know, at least three weeks to kind of fully Recharge, and that was something neat to see on like I mentioned that dog that had a uh low hematocrit level like that was possibly because of he needed more time like um perhaps that that quest four fifty was too close to Iditarod. it's possible, so that was kind of a a little thing to learn possibly um I think ideally um I wish the Caledonia and the Yukon quests were like in late January. And then I could have three weeks of more, like, um, yeah, low-key training runs uh, through February and then and then ramp it up again just before the race to kind of get their metabolism rolling again. And that's um, the thing that's talked about uh, a lot, you know, is having their – the metabolism needs to be rolling. Like, so on Iditarod, more experienced mushers than me could speak to this better, but it's like – the first 300 miles of the race or even up to nikolai checkpoint it's like it's like you're the dog is going through a transition at this point um, the dogs the all the dogs are being put under a lot of stress the run rest ratio schedule is off the charts like to be competitive at that point in the race to beat a nikolai in that top 15 or top 10 group um, the dogs are running way more than they're resting and that dog has to and this could even be with middle pack teams as well, regardless, there's still, it's a, you're, It's not just a couple back-to-back training runs. This is now back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back. And it's like, it just keeps going. And so the dog has to respond in a way like he's he or she's going to either choose to kind of rise up and the dog's body's going to respond in a positive way to that stress or perhaps in a negative way. And so um, the negative way might be a dog like, stops eating, uh, loses weight, uh, gets diarrhea, gets a uh, gastric, um, st- you know, stomach, um, something like this might appear in a dog and they're just not coping with the stress very well. And, um, this might happen. Maybe top teams, have, have are no better, or they have more experienced teams. So maybe these dogs aren't in those teams very much, but it's, um, I, that's how I look at it. It's kind of like this adjustment The dog has to decide whether, he's gonna you know uh, make it or not you know and the body of the dog has to respond to that stress so the, you know the best dogs or the dogs that just are set up properly they kind of they'll start eating more all of a sudden they're like ravenous over their food and they're like they're they're bedding down right away they're kind of getting in the rhythm and they're they're enjoying it they're tugging like in are and they're eating and happy and Okay, and then you get into your 24 and you've kind of got your team set up pretty good. So to give yourself a better chance at having that team uh, set up for success, it's important probably to have them running going into the race. This is going back to what you said earlier, like, you know, running them a lot or or a, a a decent amount going into the race, I think is really important. If they're stagnant, and they're not moving much in those few days leading up to the race, I think you're setting yourself up for trouble and they need to be doing, you know, I remember asking Ramey Smith, who's, you know, a serious veteran. And I said, how, how far do you run? Like right before the race, he says, Oh, 40 miles. Like we're doing 40 mile runs, like, you know, the week leading up to the race. And some, some teams will have, you know, if they've got somebody in the junior, I did, or dogs have run the junior I did or the weekend before. Um, and some of the teams that are up there and you know they might do one last camping trip a week before and then a couple more training runs just before um one example that sticks out in my memory you know sebastian schnuel won the yukon quest uh i forget what year that was and he ran his dogs uh either him or his handler ran the dogs every single day in between the quest and i did or they never had a day off it just short runs like 15 20 miles but it was to maintain that metabolism so the dogs were in this state of of uh, fat burning mode where they're really um, into their food they're, they're eating they their bodies have kind of overcome and they're like they're in that they're in the zone kind of thing and they're maybe the human athlete would call it ketosis or something like that but it would be something like that where the dog is just uh, in that sweet spot and you want to keep them there.
1: Interesting. That's quite a, quite a, a summary of the first third of the Diderot. I tend to think of it in thirds, you know, you just explain the first 300 miles or third, right. And then you get into the second third, which is essentially the, the Yukon for most of it. Um, and sort of what's your, your take on that portion of, of the race, you know, what's the objective, uh, after they've been through that high stress first third?
0: Well, yeah, in this, uh, you know, the dogs that um, and hopefully all of them and hopefully most of them have decided, their bodies have decided and their mind has decided that this is good and they're in a good spot. And now you can, um, you know, they've they've had some rest in the sunshine for 24 hours. And, yeah, um, yeah, I guess uh, where I've been the last couple of years in that, you know, almost top 10 right around that right in that vicinity even there it's highly competitive and yeah you you're just going to be staying with the program staying with the flow you know if you're going to rest longer than four hours you're probably not keeping up and um yeah it's uh you just yeah i think it's running your own team and Doing the best you can, I guess, and but knowing the kind of limitations on what you how long you can stop, and it's um yeah, I would say the northern route in 2020 and 2022. Yeah, getting up to the river. There's a lot of climbs up through there. It's big, big, vast, desolate country. And uh some teams do it in three runs. Say you're coming out of Takatna on your twenty out of your twenty-four, you're looking at um two runs up to Cripple but uh, and then two runs to Ruby that's four runs but then if you want to kind of take some time on the teams around you you would choose to do it in three runs so some teams I think that year I recall Michelle Phillips and Pete Kaiser doing it in uh, three runs I believe and um, I broke it into four runs um therefore, they, um, they came out, you know, they had one last rest getting to Ruby than I did. So there's an extra, you know, three hours or something like that, or four hours they might have taken on me, but yeah, you're a lot of this, uh, math and timing of things is going through your head when you're out there and you're, you're getting pretty tired. And so, yeah, sometimes you lose your train of thought and you want to stay, um, yeah, you want to run your own race, but you're also kind of aware of, of what some of the other teams are doing as well. But.
1: So is it in that second, third, where you start to pay a little more attention to what's going on around you with other teams?
0: Yeah. I, I'm just like a student of the race. You know, I, I, I can tell you, um, and I, I know a lot of the other top mushers have it memorized as well, but you know, the, the, the average trail times between every single checkpoint, you know, I, I have that in my head. I don't need to, you know, I Iditarod has luckily made that information available to us with their, uh, race archives on their website. And you can look back and look at past races and you can compare mm-hmm. and learn and study, and you can study what other mushers did and you can, um, uh, build, you know, you might choose a particular strategy that, um, Somebody who had, who had success, you might, you know, yeah, I really liked how they ran their race. You know, they did kind of a, a lot of rest in the first half or they kind of fell behind, but then they came back strong. And like, what kind of race do I want to run? I think I really like the, the you know, being, you want to be strong on the coast. You want to be strong later in the race. So you want to maybe grab that extra hour or two in the first third it might put you a bit behind the competition, but you're you're taking the gamble that you're going to have a little more oomph in your team later on, and actually an hour or two can do that. It's it's really amazing how this little bit of extra rest can actually uh, add a little sliver to your trail speed later. And um, yeah, so that's some teams um, that are going for the win. You know, they're going they're going like a stampede out of there they're 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 cutting their rest right from the start they're taking the gamble that their team has what it takes um Ryan Reddington has been a prime example of a musher like that over the last several Iditarods and he's had the courage to to take that chance and I commend that in many ways it may not be my style at this point I think you just got to know your team some mushers will push that envelope a little more in the first half of the race and so Anyways, I'm just kind of summarizing the maybe two different types of talk to tackle the race. And so maybe in a student of the race, I I'm watching what other teams are doing and thinking about it a little bit because I just I want to see how it plays out later for them and see kind of learn like if that really was a better way. So, for example, I just mentioned like um, Michelle Phillips and. Pete Kaiser, they were two of them. I think there might have been somebody else, in right in my vicinity, who, um, they took three runs to the Yukon River. I took four runs. They that put them ahead of me, and so I lost time to them. And I took my eight in Ruby, and then headed down the river. And then we're all kind of like equal, like schedules going towards the coast at that point. So that that margin has been defined, and now I can't get that. Well, I I. I'm behind, I've lost time to them, but then the opportunity you've got to tell yourself, well, there's so much distance to still cover. There's so far to go. I better not try to gamble at this point. It's, uh, you know, by cutting a rest or skipping or doing something to try to take time back or cut a rest short or something then. But it's like, how will they look later? And then maybe we, maybe something will happen later. And it actually did. So, um, I was surprised at the trail time um out of Old Woman Cabin to Unicole. It's the second part of the 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 trail. Um so this was the twenty twenty two race that I'm referring to. And um yeah, we got into Unicole and really that run I've had it take six hours before um under slower trail, but it was pretty firm and icy. I mean it was just like a basically a four and a half hour run and um, I thought you know what there's this shelter cabin another it's like halfway to shaktulik it's like i'm gonna i'm just gonna go up there and, and it's like this checkpoint that sucks you in it's like it's an awesome checkpoint it's one of the best checkpoints and you've made it to the coast it's a real milestone on the trail and thing is in unicallit the food is awesome like There'll be pizzas like, oh, so and so ordered you a pizza from home. Like you, there's like this awesome pizza place in Uniqleve. And they they so you know, there'll be a pizza with your name on it because somebody ordered you a pizza, you know, from home. They they contacted the pizza place and say, Hey, make sure that pizza's delivered to Aaron Peck at Uniqle, you know, it's like <laughs> or something like that. And and not only that, there's like these separate bedrooms off to the side and there's actual beds in there. And this has been the first time in like a long time to like, like if you go in there for a nap and you close the door and you're on an actual bed and it's warm and you've taken your boots off and it's like, it's dangerous because from a competitive standpoint, you could, you could pass out and, and oversleep and your race, everything you worked for to that point could be lost. Um, so uniquely is like this love hate thing, because, um, so this year I chose instead of stopping that or that year in two thousand twenty two, I chose to blow through. So I thought four and a half hours. The dogs looked awesome. I had a small team, but I mean they were awesome. And so we grabbed a bit of straw and a bit of dog food and I headed out of there. I wanted to get to that shelter cabin up on the hill um in the blueberry hills. And I mean, yeah, it and, and we got to leave in the daylight. And then it got real encouraging because now by blowing through, we were right in the midst of mushers that were um, you know, way ahead of me still. Like uh, there was Millie Porslid and Ryan Runnington. I remember right there when I left and I passed them and left them behind. I'm like, whoa, big confidence booster, climbing these hills with a small team with a full sled, and I'm leaving these teams behind a little bit. I mean, that was a real um, lift up, you know. And so, so then what I'm I'm explaining that because you know by losing time to some teams in the middle part of the race by, by blowing through Unicleet and, and getting over to Koyak faster, I actually gained that time back. I, I gave them a good rest up on the hill and then we, um, yeah. So I'm kind of long winded here. I know I'm just kinda, do you have any questions in there? I'm just kind of like rambling on about the whole race there. But.
1: Well, and I'm sure we could fill hours just talking about the race and some of the strategy that you go through. And, and I think it's really uh, a lot of great insight for those that haven't run it, or maybe others that have run it and are curious how you do it. Um, I wanted to ask about your rookie run, you know, your first year going out, uh, as you mentioned, you were working with uh, Martin Boozer at Happy Trails Kennel. Was there another musher on the trail that you seem to travel with, or you seem to catch up with at the checkpoints all the time?
0: Well, in that era of Iditarod, the top teams, of course, were Martin Booster, Jeff King, and Doug Swingley. And it was quite a rivalry between those three. I mean, they between the three of them, they won all those Iditarods through the 90s and and then into the early 2000s. Still, they were dominating. And so all of them had young teams in the race. So I uh, remember Sean Seidlinger was running Jeff King's um, young team, a yearling team. And um, Kevin Cordham was running Doug Swingley's yearlings. So it was like these three yearling teams that were, you know, I was seeing them quite a bit during the race. And um yours you're comparing a little bit, it was just kind of neat to see, you know, uh, and, and I was honored to be, to be, to be running, you know, possible future Iditarod champions. And in fact, they did become that some of those dogs on my team, you know, won with Martin in 2002 when he, when he uh, first musher to break the nine day barrier, that was really cool. I mean, the next year, Martin had a disappointing race. He finished like 20. It was like his worst finish in a long time. And and some of those dogs were on that team. And it was kind of – that's kind of the the pride you take in running that yearling team for kind of like that. You, you hope you're, you've done your best with them and you just really pray that they turn out good and they serve Martin and, and go on to win a championship. And that's like the ultimate, right? And to say, hey – I raised that puppy you know i i i walked that puppy and i walked those pups in the woods like all summer that when they were pups i had you know there was 38 pups born that um the first summer i was there when i was 18 and i and i had free reign from our you know in between projects and working i was walking those pups and then free running you know the pups and everything and um
1: excellent so i mean it's quite a Quite a story, you know. You know, with your time with Martin and and all the things that you got to do and to see those those dogs from you know puppy to yearling, you know, involved in their socialization as a puppy and the training, and then to have them with you on the Iditarod Trail for your first time, right? Some of them, and then you know, watching them carry on must be quite a yeah. quite a proud moment to be a part of that uh, part of that journey for them. Is there a, a dog out of that, uh, out of your time at, at Martin's that, that really stood out to you, you know, whether it was one that he ran with or you had, or that you trained with that, that kind of, you look back and remember all oh, that, that, that was the dog.
0: Well, I talked earlier about, you know, uh, sometimes the necessity of your situation brings out, you know, the biggest surprise of all. I mean, on my first, I did a the standout leaders, um, Aztec, and inca their brother and sister and they were phenomenal i mean yeah and so i wouldn't recommend taking at this point in my career like i i I don't know like to take all yearlings on the iditarod is actually quite something um now that i look at it what we were doing there you know um taking 16 yearlings up the trail with no veterans no veterans in the team but you know we were giving them eight hour rests along the way um I remember you know it was really hard leaving Aztec and Inca and Ruby I remember um uh they each had minor front end injuries kind of all happened at once and it was a big heavy blow and then you know to find the leaders that and I had a whole bunch of young leaders in the team that in training were wonderful and I thought you know but as the race kind of moved on it got harder and harder to keep the front end uh going there dogs that would train good and lead wouldn't run lead now that they were kind of tired you know even though they're getting long rests it's just seemed that they were not into it at this stage in the race they were just young and um but but ranger he stood up and uh he he's a dog i used a bit in lead during training he he was an excellent dog but um i didn't Consider him to be one of my top six, but here he is single leading me up the coast. You know, right into Nome. This yearling, his mental, his his mother was Blondie, and uh, I think he was out of Blondie and Fearless. Yeah. So the Golden Harness winners from 1997, Blondie and Fearless, uh, Martin bred those two several times, and Ranger was one of the best out of that pair. And Ranger really had the head of his mother. um in the kind of the similar personality. Just you couldn't the dog was so positive and so upbeat and yeah, and he single led me into know him. But the dog that didn't that I didn't take on the race, which was probably a mistake, um, Bronson. Bronson was maybe dog number 18 out of the in the in the pool and it was kind of on the edge of going, but I don't know. I just wasn't um convinced he, he didn't show sometimes as much like horsepower on the tug line. Uh, I think that was maybe the only reason not taking him. But um, I I remember uh, free running Bronson with his litter mates, you know, uh, as puppies. And he would always kind of be out front as a pup, you know, and kind of a little more uh, quiet and subdued. Um, Martin kept him around and he ran in his B team the next year with Andy Motoro, And Andy said, well, you better keep him around because he looks pretty good in that. And then in 2002, Bronson would, was his golden harness leader that um, – um, won the Iditarod for him in eight days and 22 hours. So Bronson was, you know, uh, you know, he was an awesome pup, but yeah, he's, he's one that was in the mix, but kind of overlooked, I would say by me. And um, I'm glad that Martin kept him in the program. He he's a young dog that could have easily been sold out to another musher. Um, You know, lots of people come to Martin to buy dogs. And I think Bronson was kind of on the edge of that. He was not the standout in lead as a yearling. But he ends up winning, you know, in record time as a as a three-year-old. Pretty cool.
1: Well, it really goes back to what we were talking about before with, you know, how do you know when that dog is is going to be, you know, in the position to step up or or to show you what it's really capable of. Right? Again, if you could have predicted the future, everybody would look at it. Oh, yeah, no, I'm taking that dog with me. You know, and it's interesting that maybe, maybe the yeah. timing just had to be right. Maybe it didn't develop as as quickly yeah. as the others, or it wasn't ready to, to be that standout lead, you know, every, every dog's different. They're not, uh, they're not little machines, although they <laughs> seem to look like it on the trail sometimes. Yeah. So it's, it's always fun to hear those, those stories about, yeah. uh, how these dogs yeah. seem to find their way into that, that position on the team, you know, from, you know, young, uh, yearlings into, uh, you know, their, their adult days and their prime in, in the race side. So.
0: Absolutely. There was a, uh, article I read, uh, Ali Zirkle's leader, Quido, Qu- I think that's how you say it, Quido, it was her main leader when she was second place three times in a row and, and Alan Moore winning, um, the Yukon quest with that little female in lead. That's a, that's one of those stories that dog didn't, um, mature and develop until it was three or four years old. And then they didn't, you know, they, they, the dog, they didn't know And um, if I recall the article correctly, and that dog turned out to be one of the greatest leaders of all time. I mean, of all time, that that leader.
1: There's Um, lots. That's another one of those. Well, there's lots of stories like that. I know, you know, uh, Mitch Seavey talked about one of his lead dogs that he bought from somebody else because you know they didn't think it was worth anything, and it won the Iditarod with him. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at Dallas Seavey's one of his first Mm -hmm. few dogs when he ran came for Mitch. Mitch didn't want him, right? It's like sometimes they just fit better with you know a different kennel a different musher a different style um you know it's it's hard to tell right and that's the that's the equalizer with dog mushing is everybody has to find that and find the right fit and everything that works Mm -hmm. well and um that that leads me to my next question which is going to be the the difficult one to answer out of everything um So I'm just pulling up your Iditarod career. I know they've been really hard so far. Just pulling up your Iditarod career. So rookie year 2000, you finished in 51st. Uh, Back again in 2005 at 45th. 2013 finished in 41. And then in 18, 34th. And then the change happened. In 19, you finished in 23rd. 2020, you talked about the scratch. 21 in 14, 22 in 10th and then this year in 15th. So is there a change that happened in that 18, 19 years that really significantly changed your, your results I did around? Like how did you go from forties and thirties to low teens or mid teens and, and, and a 10th place finish, which might be an hour long answer, but I'm, I'm curious.
0: Well, yeah, I told yeah I'm long winded I get yeah I, I love talking about the dogs and uh yeah I can go on and on. You know I think I mentioned earlier in the Canadian Challenge about that dog Dakar, that came to my kennel from Debbie Motorola, who was born in Jeff King's kennel. See, Jeff King had some dynamic females there and he, he knows he knows uh he's been pretty smart about some of his combinations and excellent genetics. So many kennels have you know, Jeff King dogs in there as their foundation, you know, it's all over the, in these top kennels in Alaska. And so I guess mine is part of that in a way, because Dakar, um, you know, sired uh, three dogs, big red camel and khaki. And these three were like comparable, like super leaders, you know, and driving, loping, multi gate dogs. They would lope hard, but could like, you know, they're right around, eight miles an hour they would or eight and a half they would transition to a uh a, a trot or a pace and then they would just instantly gear up to that lope as soon as they could. They were always looking to lope and really driving the front of the team. And Rick Wanamaker won the Canadian challenge. Um and I he was running um big red and camel in lead on that race and uh, i just uh, helped him out with a couple of young dogs i said here take these guys i think they're they'll do awesome for you they're like my up-and-comers and i didn't i let him race them and they finished for lead in lead with him so and he won the race i mean these dogs set my team into a new gear and there was other there was other great dogs along for the ride i would say but these dogs were forming the front core and um the mother uh, was a dog named colors that i got from ken Anderson slightly different bloodline, so uh they were a bit of a uh outcrop you know it was that yeah so they it wasn't really a line breeding or anything but they they just had something i had never really had before in my team and so you know in 2018 they were at the front of the team the three of them and uh yeah that gave me new confidence having i think you know the genetics on the dogs like you can you could, you could run your, your kennel for, for years and years and never, you, you may have wonderful dogs and you love your dogs and they're, they're your favorite dogs in the world. And that's awesome. And you should do the best with what you got. But I, I think sometimes like when you, when you are exposed and you get into that, that, that that different, you know, the, the different, or, you know, that, type of genetics or type of dog that has that something else I mean it's it's a game changer and I'm realizing you know these top 10 teams and Iditarod or even top 15 teams they're all tapping into you know some really good genetics and I think that's that was the game changer Um, getting more serious about the race too like I I held off running from 2013 to 18 we were building our home and Um, There was a lot of things happening in our life at that point. And I just, you know, I took a couple of years kind of off there and didn't, you know, I had to kind of hold back, but I was in the background kind of still kind of building the team. And then I really felt they were ready to, to, to go in 2018. And then we, we had a bit better foundation under us here at home. And I was able, you know, we got a couple of sponsors and we were able to kind of, make a run at Iditarod back to back. And that is the key you know, at Iditarod is to run it each year to build that momentum and to to build the depth in the team and to learn, get dogs that know the trail. It really is true. Those dogs learn the trail and, you know, they do know where they are. It's really incredible. So it's important to have that.
1: Ah, interesting. It's quite a, quite a story. And I like how the, the technology that's available now, in terms of tracking bloodlines and, and whatnot, has made life a lot easier for people to keep track of the origins of of these um, gene pools that are in each each kennel. And finding the right mix for it has been, uh, you know, interesting to watch where the, you know a lot of them come back to. So uh, I am going to jump ahead to our social media question for today, which comes from Warren Swiss. And he wants to know what your favorite off-season activity is with the dogs.
0: Um, the dogs, um, this summer, they're up in Carcross doing summer tours uh, for um, guests out of Skagway. They, they bus up to Carcross and they do um, at um, uh, Wild Yukon Adventures there. They do um, cart tours. So the dogs are busy working all summer. Uh, they're with Mela for the summer um up there in the yukon so i'm have a dog free summer we have a couple females that have stayed home um that are going to be having puppies this summer so but we have a big play yard with a big dugout a dugout in case you don't know is a big pond (laughs) and it's all fenced in so we have a large player we can turn big groups of dogs loose they can rip around in there and play um but yeah and um that's that's um you know the free running the the open fields around us um you know there's a lot of cattle out there, so we can't free run too much around all the cattle but um and you know depending on how hot it is too, it isn't always productive to free run when it's eighty degrees, so it's uh just the little play time in the dugout pen is is adequate during the summer,
1: excellent, so I know um it takes a lot of people to have a, a racing kennel, a competitive racing kennel, let alone uh, a competitive Iditarod kennel. So I just want to give you a chance to thank any and all that are involved. I'm assuming it's a long list, but that helped you uh, along the journey this year or past years to, to get where you are. Well,
0: yeah, it's a, uh, the list is a mile long. Um, it depends how far back I go. You know, you've uh, some of the Canadian challenge folks that have, been there along the way rick wanamaker's been and dina they've been wonderful uh friends wonderful friendship there over the years real encouraging and um and jerry walker there we stayed and trained out at his place a while back um yeah and you know jim cunningham who's the race marshal over there you know him and i go way back back to ontario right so and he was a, a a real positive influence on me in the early days and So yeah, that's a, some Canadian challenge, uh, folks that, um, I need to mention. And then, um, yeah, so here, you know, uh, first and foremost, my, my wife and her support, you know, that's, um, unfortunately there's been a lot of, uh, you know, top, I'm sure it's the same in any sport, you know, when you get, uh at that higher level, it's all consuming and it's really preoccupies you. It can be hard on a marriage. It can be hard on family and that. And so I've had incredible support from home from my wife and, um, she's been amazing and really, uh, supports, um, what I do. And, um, yeah, Mayla Hill has been with us the last couple of years. She's been incredibly solid. Um, you know, I trust her running my dogs completely and, um, you know, Connor was here the year before Mela was here. He was he was awesome with the dogs. I trust him running my dogs. He raced my dogs and he, you know, he was part of that stepping stone. And, um, you know, and then in Alaska, of course, Karen and, and Martin and uh, some of the, the folks up in Alaska that um, have been really supportive as well. Um, my second cousin, uh, Jeannie, she's been one of our dedicated sponsors. Um, the last four years and um yeah sponsors here in in grand prairie like blue wave energy put fuel in the truck this winter is awesome and um that made a such a difference and yeah rosca another local company stepped up to 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 get us to the start line and yeah astro oil field rentals as well i'd like to mention them too although they're they're um moved on to some bigger projects now, but they were instrumental in getting us to this point for sure. So, yeah, uh, there's so many awesome mushers out there that are encouraging and wonderful to talk to and share stories with. And so, yeah, it's an awesome community and really thankful to be part of it.
1: Well, it's it's such an interesting concept to me. You know, I, play, I was a hockey player growing up. And, you know, you see the level of competitiveness in a sport like hockey where you wouldn't think about, you know, giving your backup stick to a uh, somebody on the other team because they broke theirs and they don't have another, right? And I compare that to, you know, what you see in the mushing community or somebody breaks a sled and, oh, yeah, I got a backup. Just go ahead. It's no problem, right? Like it, it's, it's an intense competition but seems friendly, and it's one of the things I really love about it. You know, a great community, helpful people, And, uh, you know, lots of people are just doing it for the love of the dogs, but would give you whatever you needed, you know, in some cases, people sacrificing their own race to help a competitor, which is completely unheard of in other competitive, um, athletics. Right. So it's such a wonderful thing to me in the mushing community. I'm sure there's lots of stories and, uh, and more that we could go into there. I don't want to take up a whole bunch more of your time, but I do want to give people a chance to come find you uh so elevation sled dogs um and and also tours that you're offering out of uh the grand prairie area uh we're going to include your website and social media in the description below forever but can you give it to them um so they can uh check you out yeah it's
0: aaron pack and elevation sled dog adventures for both um facebook and instagram and um yeah my wife Eva was giving awesome updates during I did it was uh we got a lot of positive feedback from that and um giving commentary and yeah now with the two way communication on I being completely wide open and allowed i mean it's it's uh, um wonderful to be able to communicate and text uh with my wife during the race, so she gets some insight as to what's going on because we are partners in this, and I see it as a a team effort, not just a um not just me you know. And so, yeah, um, she gave some awesome commentary on the Facebook feed and, um, yeah, we're a little slow there right now, but hopefully, uh, we can get some more stuff up in the near future.
1: Excellent. So, yeah, as I said, we'll have that in the uh, show notes below for anybody that wants to follow along. And, uh, Aaron, just want to thank you again. Appreciate your time. I know you're busy with family and, and, uh, maybe a partially dog-free summer, but I, I know, uh, you know, with the family and, and four little kids running around, it's keeping you on your toes. So I really appreciate the time uh, that you took today with us and uh, looking forward to, um, to the next time we can get together.
0: Thanks, Dan. Keep up the good work and keep sharing the word and um, yeah, get, get the mushing, get the mushing voices out there. That's awesome work you're doing. Thanks, Dan.
1: I appreciate that. And, and once again, thanks for your time tonight and to all of our Canadian challenge fans you know, thanks for tuning in. You can subscribe uh, to us below. Uh, we also encourage you to check out some of our sponsors from Adventure Destinations and um, Baldwin Feeds, uh, as well as a few others. You can find that at CanadianChallenge.com or uh, Canadian Challenge on all of our social media aspects. So, from uh, those of us at the Canadian Challenge, thanks again uh, for joining us. Until next time, goodbye. <music> From First Paw Media, this is Canadian Challenge Tales. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we invite
0: you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. You can tap or swipe on the episode cover art, and you'll see some offers from our sponsors. You can support our show by supporting them. If you like what you have heard, we would love it if you would give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe to. Your host is Dan Kirkup. Our executive producer is Robert Forto, created for First Paw Media.